Happy New Year's and welcome back to Do North Outdoors. Natalie, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. It's good to be back into the swing of things. Did you have a highlight that stood out to you over the break? It was a really good couple holidays for me, I have to say. But if I have to choose one, so I had family visiting from Michigan. Okay. And... When they were here, it was that absolute polar vortex. Those days that I, I don't think they called it a bomb cyclone. Bo- bo- yeah, bomb yeah. cyclone, whatever that yeah. means. But just frigid days, and I've got young nieces and nephews, and we're sitting in the house for like five days. Like, what can we do? How can we get outside? How can we burn yeah. off some energy? And I suggested, kids, do you want to go build a snow fort, even though it's like minus ten out right now? And to my excitement and surprise. Everyone was pumped and excited. We got outside for a grand total of probably uh, 13 minutes, decided to go make some hot cocoa. But I just loved seeing the kids go like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. But (laughs) uh, my sister and I had to be the adults and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to go inside and protect these little cheeks and stuff. But I loved that energy. How about you? I, I got out a few times, uh, bagged a couple of pheasants as the season closed, even on the last day. And I did some ice fishing. Uh, went with my dad, went with my oldest son and early ice. I mean, it's not really early ice anymore, but it was for me because I've been on the road and it's always good to get that first fish through the ice. I, my, my oldest is eight and he's really taken to the technology side of fishing and understanding. He sees fish coming in on the graph. He knows what to do now. You know, it's, it's, Training wheels are off. He's he's doing his own fishing, and it's really fun to watch. Um, you know, so getting back out there, catching some nice walleyes, um, and then just the family time too. It's it's always a nice break. But now, a new year, and we pick up where we're we left off. We're right back at it. I'm really excited about today's guest joining us. Jason Mitchell is our guest today on the show. If you are at all an angler, you probably know who Jason Mitchell is. Jason has his own television shows, his own podcasts, uh, his own line of ice fishing houses, rods. Uh, Jason, what else am I missing about your story? Oh, wow. I don't know, but I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's going to be, uh, yeah, looking forward to visiting with you guys and catching up. Yeah. Well, um, where are you today? Because I know your journey takes you all over the place. Every time I open up my phone, I see you uh, sharing a tip or a video or photos from one of your latest fishing adventures. Are you back home in North Dakota or where are you at? Yeah, no, I'm in Devil's Lake here right now. I'll be home all week here planning on just fishing around home here. And uh, let's see, I think I go up to Winnipeg, Lake Winnipeg on the 9th. But uh, other than that, you know, I mean... I'm, I'm planning on spending as much time around home fishing as I can. So. Gotcha. Well, um, there's so many ways that I want to go with this conversation, but I think we'll just establish your role in the fishing industry first. I know a lot of people know of you. They watch you on TV. They watch you on social media and all over the place. You're on a lot of different platforms. But uh, how many days a year do you think you spend fishing? Have you ever counted it up? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I hate to say it, but it gets less every year. Um, like when I was guiding, you know, I guided for many, many years. And, and to make a living guiding, you have to be out there every day. You know, you don't get paid unless you guide somebody. And and there's there's some synergies there. I mean, the more you're on the water, the busier you are, the better you are at staying on bites. And, and you just get better at it. And so when I was guiding, I mean, that's when I was fishing way more. And I was putting in, you know, some pretty long days, which I still put in long days. But when I was guiding, I was fishing. Oh goodness! I mean, well over, well over 250 days a year. I'd probably get about 125 days guiding in the open water and about 125 days on the ice. And now with what I do, you know, I'm I'm in an office at times. I'm traveling at times, and you know, and running a business. And so I still fish. I and I fish probably a lot more than the average person, but not every single day like I used to, you know, and so, um, and, and there's pros and cons. I mean, I love guiding. I love taking people fishing. I just felt like that was my gift. Not that I was better at fishing, but I think I just had the right temperament and the right patience to deal with what can be a gong show sometimes <laughs> in the boat, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I just had the right patience for that where I just let things kind of roll off me. But, um, when I was guiding, I never got to go anywhere else and fish. I mean, I just fished devil's lake, which I love devil's lake, but what's really cool now is I get to go all these different places that I'd maybe read about or heard about and, you know, now get to experience, you know? And so, um, I really enjoy what I do now, but it has come at a cost where I don't get to fish as much as I did 
earlier in my career. Hey, you well, know, I've been keeping an eye on your, your social media and we know your home likes Devil's Lake, but it looks like you've already been able to experience quite a lot in the first, you know, month or month and a half of this ice fishing season. So kind of give us an overview. Where have you been so far this year? What have you been fishing for? I think I counted maybe, uh, maybe six or seven species already. It looked like photos of, Yeah, I, you know, we got an early start. I mean, there were many, many years, for example, at the St. Paul ice fishing show, which is in early December, uh, there were many years where nobody had been out ice fishing yet in that entire building for the entire weekend. I mean, there were many years like that where we just hadn't been out ice fishing and then goodness. And, and if we were able to get out before the St. Paul ice show, that was always kind of a big deal because, you'd have something to talk about, you know, you could talk, yeah, I've been on the ice and finding five inches, whatever it is. And it just kind of creates a buzz, you know? And so, you know, I would say on average, maybe one out of three years, you know, we've been able to get on the ice pretty comfortably or safely before the ice show, you know, at least in the upper Midwest here. This year I was on the ice for two weeks before the St. Paul show. I was on the ice in middle, almost early November, you know? (laughs) And so we had a really early start and I was just walking out on some, small lakes around here, some shallow, what we call sloughs or dish bowl lakes, you know, just for perch and uh, found some good perch bites. I kind of got lucky. I mean, sometimes I try a lot of things that don't work. And uh, sometimes I'm so bad at fishing. Some days I wonder how I ever got a TV show, but <laughs> early ice can be really humiliating where you walk out where you caught them last year. And after walking a mile on the ice, you drill some holes and you can't mark a fish and you think, Oh man. And then you walk out on another lake and you know, you can put in some long days and, and really have some humility at the end of the day. But this year, I got lucky. I walked out on the first lake I tried. I think like the fourth or fifth hole I drilled. Um, I, it was a deal where you could sit in one spot and catch 50 fish a day. Wow. <laughs> you know, and sat there for a week before I ever saw another person, you know. And so, um, you know, that's kind of how we got. So that's that's how we got started. And then uh, and then we started fishing on Devil's Lake. Uh, we got on Red Lake right away and got on some good fishing up there. Uh, where else have we been? Um We've been on some good perch bites here at home on Devil's Lake. And then uh, we went over to Lake Sakakawea and filmed some stuff over there, which that was really good fishing. And then, uh, you know, we've been bouncing around. We've done a little bit of panfish stuff, you know, the classic bluegill and crappie stuff over in western and central Minnesota, too. So, yeah, we've been trying to get out and about. And we're sitting good as far as our filming schedule. I feel like we're a little bit ahead of the curve, so that's good. Uh, I want to go back to the the sloughs that you talked about, because as an avid uh, angler that likes to explore. I find myself up in North Dakota pretty regularly and I like to jump into those sloughs, but you ne- I feel like you never know for sure what's actually in there. And you could go into one that's, you know, five acres and it would be plump full of huge perch. And then you go to the next one and you drill and fish all day and never see anything. Do you strike out like I do on some of those sloughs or do you go into it with with an approach where you're like, how do you know or how do you pick which ones you're going to try? Well, uh, sometimes I pick one because I had such a terrible day the day before. I'm not going back to that lake. And I just go to the next <laughs> lake down the road. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, uh, and I, and I think it's important to stress because, you know, a lot of times with television, you know, people always joke or romanticize, boy, be sure to need to see the reality of something. Well, the reality is that, you know, me walking across the ice and drilling holes and not marking a single fish all day would be pretty boring television. So, you know, with all of our stuff, right, it's, it's, you know, you don't show the big long walks where you don't see a pheasant, right? It's pretty boring, right? People want to see the, the fish. They want to see the birds. They want to see all these different things that we're doing and maybe skip the the pain in between, even though people get maybe a distorted perception that, you know, that, you, you know, I mean, reality is we have 20 minutes of television, you know, it took a whole day or two to film, you yeah. know, and uh, there's been times where I've had to wait on the same clothes for three days, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> We've all been but, there. You know, and then there's, but, you know, the reality is then, too, is sometimes you catch enough fish for maybe in an hour, but you got all the other shots that you need, too. And so there's a lot, too, shooting a show that people might not realize. But I try so many things that don't work. And I, I have to stress that to people because people just see the stuff on TV and they think that, boy, everything that I catch works. Every time I touch the water, these fish just swim to me. And that's not the case. I, I can't tell you how many times I've I, – I go by the stocking reports, which you think, boy – Maybe the game of fish doesn't know that much or, oh, they're not testing or they're not netting as much. Or you think, well, it can't be that simple or easy, but it really is. If you go on the stocking reports and the lake descriptions, they're, they're pretty accurate, you know. 
And so you'll see some lake descriptions that might say low densities of perch, but big fish presence, high pike numbers. You go to the lake, and sure enough, that's exactly what you find. And um, you'll find some lakes, you know, high perch numbers, uh, most, you know, are 10 inches, you know, or whatever it is. But the, the, the numbers or the, the lake descriptions are fairly accurate. And so I start off with that. And sometimes, you know, you get a hot tip, you know, somebody at the cafe or the grain elevator will share something or somebody heard something from somebody. And that could be a double-edged sword. Um, I can't tell you how many times a complete waste of day by going on some hot rumor that was secondhand, you know. But, uh, yeah, we try a lot of things that don't work. Um, it's it's amazing. You can be on a lake and it's like there's nowhere for them to hide and, and not do well. And then the next year that lake turns on or a lake that can be really good and it word gets out and it's not good the next year, you know. So, But there's so many of them. I, th- I, I thought I heard once that uh, North Dakota Game and Fish like in the 80s managed like 150 lakes now they manage over 500 as far as stocking you know so there's so much water now that never existed before and it's fertile water it's you know so great tremendous fishing opportunities but yes we those lakes cycle they turn on they turn off and we try lakes all the time that we get burned but it's so special when you find them I got to jump in and say that this is so comforting hearing it um, from you and so relatable because I'm a mediocre fisherman on my best day. And actually, funny enough, so I was up on Red Lake, I think the same time as you were, at least one of the days earlier this year, on the absolutely wicked day of wind right after oh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, so my friends and I actually, we kind of pulled an audible and we went to, we just chose a small little lake in the area thinking that we could just get on some big jumbo perch and get out of the wind a little bit. And we had no luck. It's exactly what you were just talking about. We thought we were for sure going to catch some panfish. It's a little lake. It's going to be easy. We experienced the same wind that I think we would have had on Red Lake. And we just, we didn't, we didn't get on them that day. So it's relatable. Um, But something I I wanted to bring up too, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, we had early ice this year and really this winter has been a heck of a winter in pretty much every way. We've had winter storm after winter storm, Tons of cold, tons of snow. How has that played into your season? Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, some of the worst, worst conditions, you know, where we had like well below zero and stuff, you know, I was just fishing at home and messing around where we weren't filming. It's really hard for us to film when it's 30, 40 below zero just because of the condensations with the cameras. You can't handle fish outside and release them because they're just going to freeze up. And I think it sets a bad example, mm-hmm. you know, as far as respecting the resource. And um, if you try to fish inside of a shelter when it's that cold, you know, your propane just burns. There's so much condensation that it really is hard on the lens. And you guys probably know that as well as anybody. But uh, so there was a couple of weeks where we just didn't do anything, you know, as far as from a videography standpoint. We just went out and fished for fun. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's always good when we get winter. I mean, we're, we're in a lot worse shape when we don't have ice in early December. You know, we don't know where we're going to go or, or, or the ice is sketchy, the ice is dangerous. Because the other thing that um, I always want to be conscious of is I want to make sure that I'm setting a safe example too where I don't want to go out somewhere where the ice is really sketchy and I know it and then I, I put a show out there or put a YouTube video out there or social media stuff out there where people can respond and react to that information fairly quickly and then somebody goes out and tries to mimic what I did and gets hurt or, or worse, you know. And so I like it when the ice conditions are safe. And so we've had that for the most part. Now, we've had a lot of snow on top of the ice, which creates some slush and some issues that way. But, like, I was over by, just over by uh, St. Cloud on the horseshoe chain, and um, that ice, had, that, that slush was freezing up, and there was a lot of wheelhouses out there. I mean, people are getting around the ice good. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, it could be doom and gloom as far as conditions and people worrying about getting out on the lake and being able to drive and stuff. And then, a week or two later, those conditions can be completely different. I think that's what we're kind of seeing this year. It might be this early cold weather from an ice fishing uh, standpoint, from a precipita- uh, uh, participation standpoint, it might actually be a, turn into a pretty good winter because what I find is the average angler is pretty casual. And so if you can get where people can get wheelhouses and drive on the lake with their pickups and not need tracks and not need, you know, not have to dig themselves out of the snowbank, um, people get out there and enjoy it. And so that's kind of what we're starting to see right now after the new year here, you know, these lakes are starting to fill up with fish houses. So that's good to see. Yeah. I, I know that you get to travel to a lot of different areas and some years, Northern third or Northern half of Minnesota and Wisconsin 
it can be so slushy that you can't go anywhere unless there's a plowed road. And I think, I mean, I could be wrong here, but we may have had enough just or not enough ice to really hurt us this winter when the big heavy snows came because a lot of that will soak up and essentially turn into the top layer of ice that people can then drive on versus having a foot of ice, then getting a foot and a half of snow on top of it that turns into water underneath. Now I think we've got a lot of frozen slush that has become the ice. And I'm seeing people driving all over the place. When you look at the snow in the ditch and you think, how can they possibly get around? Well, a lot of that snow is soaked up and frozen. So there's not yeah. as much on lakes. You as- know, when you get those really frigid, cold temperatures, you know, when it's 20 below for a week, it's almost like that snow just gets hard. It's like it shrinks. It, uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not a scientist or anything. I don't know what the... You're just a simple is. angler. <laughs> yeah. Everything gets smaller, you know. It's like, you know, it... it and so, yeah, I mean, the lakes are starting to look pretty good. I mean, the ice is firming up good. Uh-huh. And so, you know, actually, it's it might turn out to be a better year when it's all said and done. Well, I've talked to, I keep in touch with people in the in the ice fishing industry, and they're all saying, you know, this is just another one of those great seasons where it comes early. It's a long ice season. There's good ice. People are able to get out. But um, I want to go back to something we were talking about when it comes to those jumbo perch, because North Dakota and South Dakota have just been, over the last 10 years, a hot destination for ice anglers, and they travel all over the Midwest to get there. Um, but I, you know, the, we'll get into the science here for a second. A lot of those perch, this is my understanding of them talking to some biologists, and Jason, you can tell me if you agree or disagree or what you know about them, but the jumbo uh perch in those sloughs or lakes or whatever you want to call them they gorge on freshwater shrimp they grow really fast you get these hot bites but the fish only last i think some biologists biologists have told me they only last like five years so once those perch hit that five year and you're and people are like oh you know it's on fire it's on fire i caught monster perch here the next year they go back there and the lake is just it's like it had winter kill almost they're gone they wonder where they all went but I, you know, some people say, you know, it's overfished, but then a biologist will tell you that those fish died naturally, the ones that were left over. Is that your understanding of how the perch bite works or the perch yeah, populations exactly. work I mean, out it's, there? It's kind of a tricky thing. There's nothing quite like it from a management standpoint, especially out here where, you know, you've got the, the, the sloughs and these shallow lakes that are so productive because at one, you know, not that many years ago it was terrestrial vegetation. And Biologists have a word for it, but whenever you take terrestrial vegetation and you make it aquatic, you release a lot of carbon into that ecosystem. And so it's almost like rocket fuel, right? And so uh, you can have a shallow, fertile fishery, but when you add flooded, like, you know, any type of flooded habitat, it it just, it adds a lot to that uh, fishery as far as the growth rates and everything. And so, you know, you'll see where, you know, you stock fish in a lake and yeah, they, they only live to be four or five years old and in from what I understand as well, you know, when fish have a really high, freaky fast growth rate, they don't live as long as where fish have slower growth rates can live a lot longer, you know. And so uh, we've been at places where we caught, say, 12, 13-inch perch that looked like they were ancient compared to our perch. You know, you can just tell by their fins and their warts and, you know, things that old fish have. But, um, yeah, they grow fast. It's very productive, very fertile. They're eating a lot of invertebrates, freshwater shrimp, the gamerous in particular. There's several different kinds of, of these freshwater shrimp. And what's amazing, you know, you being a, I know you're a you know, fanatical duck hunter, you know, you can have a, these prairie ecosystems are so fasting where you can have a low depression and it can be dry for 10 years uh-huh. and you add six inches of water to it and those eggs have been laying dormant that entire time and it'll just explode with life you know yeah. i remember as a kid i would fill jars full of everything that wiggled or squirmed or swam <laughs> in the water i would have jars you know, like canning <laughs> jars you know and, and you know catch all these bugs and stuff but uh you know the fish grow fast eating those invertebrates but you almost it almost gives these fish a different personality where mm-hmm. like these fish they'll have these huge bellies, these broad backs, big humps on their backs. Uh, they almost have like a helmet for a head. They have a tiny little mouth. Whereas if you catch a 14-inch perch, say, on Green Bay or the Finger Lakes in New York, it's got a mouth like a smallmouth bass, you know. Even Leech Lake, you know, those fish are tearing up rusty crayfish. 
our fish, their little mouths and their temperament, they would die if they ever had to go head to head with a six inch rusty crayfish. You know, <laughs> the rusty crayfish would win, you know. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, but so it's amazing how you take the same fish and you put it in different ecosystems and how it adapts or molds to that ecosystem, you know. And so I find that fascinating, but it get, make, makes them temperamental, a lot more finesse. Uh, as, a, as a rule of thumb, these fish aren't as aggressive, and so they can be trickier to catch too. So. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like a different species. I try to explain that to people that have not fished out in the Dakotas for jumbo perch that then fish them in Minnesota, let's say. And they might catch like a 9 or 10-incher and call it a jumbo perch. I'm like, no, that's not a jumbo perch. Trust me, that's, yeah. that's well, a perch. The attitude, right, like being on yeah. Leech Lake where you have all these 5 to 6-inch perch that just attack you, right? If you're anywhere mm-hmm. near them, they find you, right? Yeah. And I remember like some of the earliest, earliest trap attacks where you know, we had people coming in from out of state, you know, fishing on Devil's Lake and and, uh, you know, they'd make comments in the bait shop, you know, like, oh, you know, we're struggling. We just can't find them. And, you know, if I can find them, I can catch them. I can always catch perch. I'm like, well, you haven't tested these critters yeah. in 40 feet of water. You can spend, yeah, you spend <laughs> yeah. days and days trying to find them. And then all of a sudden it's one hole and you just, like, yeah. whoever's in it, it's it's the most bizarre thing. But um, if, if you haven't ice fished for jumbo perch before, you have to do it because it's its own um, experience. It's, a, I, I think it's more of a hunt than anything, especially yeah, like well, where you know, you're it at. encompass a lot of different things. It's almost like uh, bow hunting or anything else in the sense that, you know, we're talking about all these fish eating all these bugs and how their body conditions is off the charts. And they have these little mouths and they're not used to, you know, they're used to catching things that have no eyes that can't swim away or they can swim, but they swim in a straight line. There's no evasive maneuvering with a shrimp, you know? And, uh, so they're e- used to these easy meals, and they're and they're just bulging with food. I mean, they, they can't eat anymore, and yet they still try to eat something. And sometimes when, when fish are like that, they can be really tricky or tough or temperamental to catch, where they'll have windows where they bite and windows where they don't. And, you know, and like a biologist's worst fear, for example, is if the fishing is so good that everybody's catching fish. You know, if the fishing is so good where everybody's catching fish, there's usually something wrong with that ecosystem where those fish are stressed from a lack of forage base. You see a forage collapse, and then everybody feels like they should be uh, fishing on the professional tour because, <laughs> you know, everybody feels like a rock star when they get done, where these fish will humble you because they do have so much to eat. But it's a double-edged sword, but you see, you know, fast growth rates, beautiful-looking fish. Um, so sometimes it can be methodical where you're pulling your hair out and you're, marking fish and you're trying to get maybe one out of 10 to bite. And there's other times where that ain't the program. You've got to run and gun and drill a hundred holes. And that 99th hole is the one and you've got five feet of fish stack below you and they're racing up as you're reeling up and they're racing up to your lures or dropping back down, you know? And so you can see, and that's part of the cycle too, is you'll see these cycles where the fish first get into a lake. And then when they crop off that, you know, the predation will knock down the forge that's available the fish that are left are more aggressive because they don't have as much to eat. And so you'll see kind of an ebb and flow that way too with these cycles. Yeah. So it's not just the fish cycles, but it's also the that forage balance cycle too that can really affect how a lake fishes from one year to the next. Yeah, there's a lot to an ecosystem that people may not understand if they don't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, let's stick in, in your neck of the woods for two fisheries that I think make people feel like they're all professional anglers or can. Lake Sakakawea and Devil's Lake. Those are two major uh, fisheries out there. Uh, I've fished Sakakawea. I think it's one of the most underrated um, bodies of water in, for sure, the Midwest, but even North America. It is so fertile, so many big fish out there. Um, what's your experience with Sakakawea? Let's start there. <coughs> well, I love Sakakawea. It's, it has a special place in my heart because that's where I grew up fishing as a kid. You know, before I was ever guiding on Devil's Lake, you know, I was that's where I grew up. And I um, always felt like it was such a blessing to grow up there. There's some really, really good anglers in that a- area that uh, were kind of isolated. And, you know, when I was growing up, you know, when I was a kid, you know, before Internet and everything, you know, like Minneapolis, Minnesota, Mille Lacs, I mean, that felt like, you know, that felt like the edge of the world. Like that was a long ways away. And, and so, you know, growing up in western North Dakota, it, we were so isolated from everything where we weren't, you know, we weren't as exposed to a lot of things. And so I think sometimes that was kind of a blessing where people kind of came up with their own ways of doing things that were maybe a little bit unique, where a lot of times with fishing, you know, something will work, then everybody will copy it. And if nobody tells you how to do something the right way, you can figure out some really cool ways to do it the wrong way that really work, you know. And uh, 
And then the other thing with Sakakawea is that the water is always going up or down. So you had to relearn the lake every year. You, you know, you go, you, you, the spot where you caught all the fish last year might be 10 feet out of the water. Or it might be 20 feet deeper, you know. And so you have to relearn the lake every year. There weren't a lot of boats back then fishing the lake. And so you had to learn how to find fish and use your electronics and, you know, and just kind of figure things out on your own. And so I always felt like there was such an advantage coming from that area. And uh, I've seen the lake on several cycles, you know, as far as good fishing and bad fishing. In the 80s, the fishing was crazy. And then in the 90s, the lake uh, elevations crashed and the smelt populations crashed. And, and so we've had some ups and downs. And now what we're seeing right now is kind of one of the best times ever on Sakakuya. I mean, the last three or four years have been just insane. I mean, it's not just big fish, but you can catch lots of fish. You can catch fish from one end of the lake to the other. Uh, the body condition of the fish is impressive. Uh, we were filming out on Van Hooker. Well, we were filming more towards deep water here this year. And there was a time where we were off of Shell, you know, near Shell where we could see Shell Village. is a very popular area, uh, very probably one of the, the very best spots in the whole lake as far as producing fish every day. And uh, there were times where I could maybe see 20 boats, 30 boats in my vision, right, where I could just see around me and I could probably see maybe a mile or two around me. And it almost felt like at times every boat somebody was holding a net, <laughs> just fish getting caught and fish getting caught and you go to the fish cleaning stations think my goodness are fish getting caught but i don't think you know i i hope that i'm right here but i don't think these people are even putting a dent in i mean there's so many fish in that lake right now that uh, uh that even Natalie could catch even, one. So, and you bring up a good point. So I, I, I want to add, I'm a much less experienced ice angler than the two of you, certainly much less experienced perch angler. So for others like me, I have kind of a, a more basic and kind of a cheater question, but I'd love to get your perspective for individuals like me that are getting into perch fishing through the ice that seem to catch a lot of little perch. And we can take it from the perspective of your neck of the woods in North Dakota, What's the difference maker? What maybe a, a couple tips that you can give us to upgrade from our, our little cute perch to some of the jumbo perch? I'll, I'll answer first and then we'll let okay. Jason tackle it. You're fishing in a lake that does not have jumbo perch okay. in it. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you need to go down the road further. <laughs> yeah. I get that email about 30 times a week. <laughs> no, I live in Northern We want all Iowa. your secrets right yeah. now. I okay. have a cabin on Bullhead Lake. I've lived there for 25 years. I've never caught a wally over 20 inches. Help, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> you're fishing the wrong lake. So travel <laughs> to North Dakota is what you're telling, yeah. what you're you're telling you, me. You, you can't catch what's not there, right? Mm -hmm. and, I mean, there's some places, for example, like say Winnebagosh or Leech Lake or Brainerd, you know, where you might say have a... Uh, a lake that's got a lot of perch and most of them are small and a few of them are big like cascade right cascade is a tremendous big perch trophy fishing destination where people are driving 20 hours to get there or more most of the fish are four inches long and the trick is you got to fish five six feet above the runs to catch that 14 incher have you you fished out there before right yeah i've been out there a couple of times yeah is it and worth so the sometimes drive you can fish above you know but a lot of times you just have to fish where the big fish are it's like shooting a a uh, 150 inch deer is the same as shooting a 105 inch deer. Yeah. Hey, hey, you know is, I mean? is it worth the drive based on what you've experienced on Cascade? Because that's one of those, it's like for a lot of ice anglers, that's the top of the bucket list because of the, the massive perch that they're catching. Yeah, I think it is. I've been out there twice. I'd like to go out there more. I mean, I would go out there every year if I, if I, you know, I, in my mind, I, I feel like I have to, like with the television stuff, I have to go to different places. I just can't do the same thing over and over and over that's so far out there like Cascade. Like, I feel like I can get away with doing a Devil's Lake episode every year or a Leech Lake or things that are very relevant for our viewing audience where, where, where we air our show. And things that are a little bit out there on the edge, I feel like I can overdo it. And so I always try to figure out some new places to go every year. And I try to figure out, you know, what's something I haven't filmed yet that I probably should have by now. And, and so... I, if I could, I would go to Cascade every week. I mean, I love it. I mean, it's one of my favorite places in the world. It's like traveling back in time. I mean, it's like traveling back 30 years ago. Like It's like how North Dakota was, say, 30 years ago, where we get out there, right? We're drilling holes. We're doing our thing. We run into a few locals, and there's a guy out on a lawn chair sitting out on the ice. He's got four, five holes drilled in the line. He's got his six-foot ugly stick rods laying on the ice with a jig and a night crawler. <laughs> and uh, we're talking to him and, and he's, you know, I think he catches some fish. I mean, it sounded like he's kind of an avid ice angler. And uh, he's like, you know, you can use five holes, five lines here in Idaho. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, thanks. That's good to know. 
And so I keep fishing or whatever. I'm bouncing around. I'm moving and doing my thing. And, and he comes up and he says, yeah, you know, you can use five lines. I said, oh, okay, that's good. Thanks, you know. I thought maybe he thought that maybe I didn't hear him the first time, you know. And uh, that's kind of weird, you know. Okay, five lines or whatever, four lines. I can't remember what it was. But they just couldn't believe that we would just use a Vexar in one rod. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, you know, hey, what's that Vexilator that you're using? <laughs> you can use five thing. rods, you know. Yeah, but that's their deals, you know. Yeah, speaking of going back 30 years, um, I can go back 30 years and remember when I was a kid, I didn't watch cartoons. I watched fishing shows. I was just addicted to it. And one of the shows that aired on TV, we didn't have cable when I was growing up. We only had, a, you know, five stations or whatever. Tony Dean Outdoors was one of the TV shows that I watched. And I, I knew what time it aired, and I it was appointment viewing for me as a kid to sit down. And there's two iconic voices that I remember growing up, Ron Shera's and Tony Dean's. They just had yep. that that voice about them that when they talked, you knew it exactly who it was. He had the same music track that played every week, and it was like the sunrise. If anybody listening right now that goes back, they know what I'm talking about. It was like the the credits would roll, and it was like a sunrise over the water uh, and a beautiful scene and the same music, and Tony was voicing it, and it was just like... I don't know, but it was iconic to me. And that is the one of the shows that I always remember as a kid. And now you have taken over for Tony. Did you have uh, any connection to Tony before you bought his company? Or was this a dream of yours to always do this? Did you watch his show like I did? Yeah, I remember seeing it as a kid. I remember just hearing a lot about him. You know, I... Um I didn't get to watch much television. I mean, you got to remember that like when I was a young man, I was living in a camper and uh, I have to walk about 30 yards to go to the bathroom, you know? And um, so I didn't, <laughs> I was like a fishing bum on the lake. And so I didn't have cable or TV or nothing. And so I went for a long, long time without much uh, outside influence. But uh, Tony and I were really good friends and um, we filmed quite a different few different shows together we filmed ice fishing we filmed open water fishing we filmed some hunting stuff and uh, he just became a really good mentor of mine and um, just a great guy I mean just uh, uh, goodness we would you know just the conversations that we had and the amount of time that we spent together I mean I really really cherish those memories now but um, he was just a classy great guy I remember the first time I ever filmed with him it was kind of an accident I mean there was a there was another guy that I guided with his name was Mike Shell that was the guide on Devil's Lake you know east in the open water fishing and um, really good at it just a great guy and he was one of the guys that really helped me get started and kind of took me under his wing when I was you know 20 years old and um, so he was guiding and I was guy we're kind of guiding together on Woodland Resort and this is back when I think there's like a hundred guides or more on Devil's Lake today this is back when there was just a couple of us and um, and I soon realized in the guiding profession that the easiest way to make it is just to stay out of the bar. You know, it seemed like the bar ruined a lot of good guides or maybe guides that had the potential to be good. And, um, you know, try to be on time in the morning, get up in the morning and stay out of the bar and just stay away from that side of that world because people are on vacation and they're going to have a few drinks or whatever. But you got to remember that you're going to work, you know, and uh so I got some tremendous mentorship from Mike. Well, Tony had filmed, you know, some shows with Mike. And, you know, Mike, you know, just had that experience where going with Mike was about automatic. I always felt like to try to keep up with Mike, I was like on a donkey and he was riding a thoroughbred. I mean, I had to, I had to run twice as hard to keep up. It's like he made fishing look so easy. You know, he grew up on Devil's Lake and just made it look so easy. And, you know, I had to work twice as hard. I remember he'd be done in three or four hours and he'd be sitting back at the bait shop and I'd be out there in hundred degrees and stuck on nine walleyes, you know, and uh, couldn't get that 10th one, you know, back, you know, talking, you know, years ago, you know, everybody is so limit orientated that, you know, they hire a guy to go get a limit of walleyes and then they want to go back to the bar, you know, and, and, um, so one time Tony came up to film with Mike and Mike had some customers that wouldn't film, wouldn't fish with anybody but him, you know, and so Tony ended up going with me that day, you know, I drew the short straw. And so um, that's how Tony and I kind of connected or met up. I, I knew him before that, but that's the first time that we spent a day in the boat together. It was pretty nice. You know, we fished out of Tony's boat. And I felt like I was on a day off, you know, Tony kind of ran the boat and 
I helped them and kind of pointed them where to go and what to do and stuff. And and we we kind of struggled. And we we ended up eking a show out in a day, but it took us all day. And you know, I remember I had a really good bite going the day before, and of course that day, the next day, the fish had moved and weren't there. And we had to kind of find them again. And we ended up filming a show, and but we just had some really nice conversations. We just kind of clicked and hit it off. And uh, Tony was really uh, intellectual. I mean, he did a lot of reading and a lot of, you know. Uh, he just put a lot of thought and time into, into trying to find out as much as he could about topics and subjects that he was passionate about, which was outdoors, conservation, wildlife. And so Tony's words had a lot of weight, you know, and I didn't always agree with every single thing, you know, but um, I always knew that there was, you know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, uh, R&D that went into any decision or, or thought process that he had. So, goodness, we had some wonderful conversations about wildlife and conservation and business. You know, he's a tremendous business mentor. And so then we we really hit it off. We became great friends. He's a great mentor. And we probably filmed maybe a dozen shows, maybe more. I can't remember all of them. Um, and, uh, you know, and I kind of came into my own as a guide. I mean, I... I had the short donkey at first, and after a while, you know, it's like my legs got a little longer too, you know, and, and uh, you know, out there on a premier fishery, fishing every day, you know, the lake makes you look good too. But, uh, uh, and then I remember one time, it was the middle of waterfall season, October, and I've been guiding duck hunting and goose hunting. I mean, the waterfall hunting is a real grind where you're up at four or five every morning, and then you maybe, if you're lucky, you get to take a little bit of a nap, and then you're scouting every night. And it's just a lot of moving parts, and it's a it's a grind. And I remember Tony calling me at like nine o'clock at night, on like October sixteenth, you know, like halfway into the season. And uh, hey, you know, you got to come over and have supper at the hotel here. I got to talk some business with you. I'm like, oh my god, that's the last thing I want to do, is at nine o'clock at night go eat and have a beer and sit in a hotel restaurant where more people are going to talk to you too, not just Tony, you know, and. Uh, and Tony's probably the only person in the world that I would have done that for, <laughs> you know, in the middle of October. Like, sure, Tony, whatever you need. So I was over there and uh, sat down, and, and uh, I honestly thought that he's going to talk to me about his website. You know, we did a little banner, a little advertising on his website. Let's figure out something to do with the website. And he wanted to know if we wanted to keep doing it or whatever. And, and uh, then he told me, he said, hey, I'm, you know, I want to retire. He, he wanted to really get into a lot of uh, – writing and conservation projects he wanted to put together kind of a think tank that uh, a lot of prairie restoration and conservation stuff that he was really passionate about and so that was the next chapter that he was looking at and uh, then he wanted to know if I wanted to buy a show from him and um, I knew it was a tremendous opportunity I mean I I maybe thought about television a little bit but I just knew there wasn't room for both of us in the Dakotas and uh, Tony's such a good friend that I just never really thought about it very hard and then had the opportunity to, to buy a show, and, and then the plan was that we were going to co-host a show together for a couple of years because I didn't know nothing about television. All I'd done is been on a couple of TV shows, you know, and uh, and then Tony died unexpectedly. And so, yeah, I mean, we're kind of thrown into it, but uh, that was right 2007. I think Tony, yeah, and so, goodness, it's I think this is like our 15th year already that we've been doing this. Hard to believe. It's amazing how how quickly it's gone. Yeah. And you know, Jason, your passion for sharing the outdoors and the sport of fishing really comes through in all you do. You know, we talked about TV, social media, you know, writing really everything. So we know, you know, we've kind of heard about why you love fishing and kind of how that all started, but what continues to inspire you and push you today to share these things with, you know, the next generation or with a wider audience? Well, I, I, I love it. And I think, you know, there's always there's always something to learn. Things change. Um, I I feel like there's a, I mean, you put something into it, you put effort into something, and sometimes you're not successful. You know, I think that's an important component. Like my son, not to go off the rails or go off topic, but he loves to trap. And I think the reason he loves to trap so much is that I didn't know nothing about trapping, and I really sucked at it. I remember people tell me, oh, just go trap some muskrats. That's the easiest thing in the world. We went out and we, we struck out trapping muskrats. Like we couldn't do nothing right. I was like the worst mountain man on the planet trying to, <laughs> you know, help my son get going on this trapping thing. For whatever reason, he had this great interest in it. And uh, finally, we had some success. And I think the success has meant more where I think with fishing, I made it too easy. And like the other day, we went out ice fishing and, you know, he came along. He fishes. He knows how to fish. He's caught some big fish. And 
I said, you don't like fishing as much, do you? He's like, yeah, it's, I can take it or leave it. I really like trapping. And I think it's because he got to do it himself. And he, he, tell, he said something on the way home. He's like, you ever notice, Dad, that all the pastor's kids are atheists? I'm like, what? You know? And uh, not that that's true, but it's kind of a, a saying tongue-in-cheek that, you know, or one, one of the things that I always heard growing up is, you know, the, the biggest hellraisers in town are the pastor's kid, right? Like they, they get something rammed down their throat so much that they, they rebel and they go the opposite direction sometimes with human nature. And I think with fishing, not that everybody's the same, but I think with fishing, I made it too easy for my son. And um, the trapping had enough challenges where he felt that, that great reward of figuring something out. I think that's great for people, you know, Go out, and that's what I love about fishing, is you go out and you try a few things that don't work. You go to your favorite spot that don't work. You make this adjustment. You try this. You change that. And all of a sudden, by the end of the day, you put something together, and you think, wow, I really really did this. You know, And it's like this huge sense of accomplishment. You know, And if, you, if it happens too much, nobody could stand to be around you. So luckily, fishing can be pretty humbling, too, where the next day you go out where, where everything was perfect and right, and, and you just get your... You just get your clock cleaned. And, and I think, though, ultimately that, that fishing is good for people. I mean, I look at what fishing has done for my life, not just from a business standpoint, but just uh, spiritually, personally. Um, I, I mean, I, I think fishing is just so good, especially for young people. I, no matter what shape you're in, no matter what color, size, you're tall, short, no matter, everybody can get good at fishing where chances are none of us could have played in the NFL, no matter how hard we practiced, no matter what we did. We just weren't built blessed with those skill sets, you know, or that gift. And uh, I feel like anybody can get good at fishing. And uh, I feel like fishing is good for people. I always tell people all the time, you know, you look at all the craziness in the world, you know, especially like with young people, there's so many people that just seem angry or they're not happy with the world. And um, you turn on the news and there's, you know, people, you know, breaking windows and cars or, or, or worse yet, you hear about these tragedies where some kid walks into a school with a gun. You know, he didn't get done just climbing out of a bull stand or didn't get done catching a bass on a top order that morning, right? If everybody fished, I just feel like our world is such a better place because I think there's such a spiritual, therapeutic aspect to fishing that is just good for people. And so every once in a while I get hate mail from people or I can't, you know, you should have never said that lake or you filmed a show on Lake X even though I didn't even name the lake, but somebody recognized the shoreline and all the lakes ruined because of you and all these (laughs) jerks and terrible people from out of town, which you never notice that if you live in the town, you're great, but if you're out of town, you're terrible. Yeah. They came in and raped our lake, and now the lake sucks because of you, and I hope you die and go to hell and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I've never apologized for helping people catch fish because I feel like that's the worst of our problems. If somebody's fishing by, you're out there enjoying the same things that you are. We can share the fish. We can stock more fish. I just feel like we need more people fishing because of the bigger 30,000-foot view, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it's – I mean, there's a lot, lot to chew on there just in everything you unpacked, but – I think, you know, it's so relatable to me going back to the story with your son. I've gone through similar experiences with my kids or questioning how I'm bringing them into the outdoor world. Um, you know, I've, I, before I did television like you, I was a fishing guide, spent hundreds of days on the water. And, <clears throat> you know, there's, I can't like in my mind, just go cast the line out and just wait to see if a bobber goes down. My wife laughs like we couldn't just go to a fishing pier because I would say, no, the water temperature is here. The fish have already moved out, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I yeah. just like it's in my mind. So my yeah, I don't kids up to fail. No. Yeah, no. exactly. So when I go to fish, I go to catch like I am. I don't go. Ca- I go catching and it is humbling. But I have so many times taken the challenge out of my kids hands. I basically yes. put a fish on the end of the line for them. And. I do wonder sometimes when is the right time to let them really fail and struggle and not catch anything because like your son is experiencing the success that he's figured out on his own in the trapping world. If he experiences the failure, but also his own success in catching the fish now, does that change it for him? Yes, I, I think it is. I mean, I think that's where I made a mistake. I, uh, I mean, I would take my kids when they're really little out to a spot where I'm not kidding. I mean, it was a spot like, say, I've been, you know, back, especially back when I was guiding, you know, and uh, they were really little. And I'd be like, I'd get done with a really hot bite. and I'd bring my guys in and I'd clean their fish and I would pick up my kids and I'd run them out there. And they would drop the lines over the side of the boat. And before they could close the bale, they'd have a fish on, mm-hmm. you know. And then I would lift the rod up a little bit for them and, you know, even almost help them set the hook. And they would just reel on the fish. And, oh, cool, cool. You know, and they'd be touching the fish or whatever. But, you know what, maybe I should have 
done even less. And I and I think that's probably a mistake that I've made. Maybe my own. I don't know. I don't know why, but if I see somebody doing something wrong, it drives me nuts, and I'll try to help. That's maybe just a guide in me. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe I just made it too easy, and I didn't. I did it too much with my own kids, if that makes any sense. Where I should have just let them set the hook terrible, wrong, and missed five fish in a row, and know the heartache of watching a big walleye wall up to the top of the water, get off, and there you can sit and think about this, and then maybe tomorrow you'll do it better. <laughs> I don't know as that sounds, but, but that's kind of how I Yeah, grew up, that's how I grew up it. too, for sure. I think you there's know? a lot of value in in losing the fish. The big one that got away brings you back for the next one. I mean, yeah. I, I guess I haven't thought about it from this this exact perspective before well, but think if we about this, think how many kids grow up in resorts i mean and there's exceptions to everything you can't pe- paint people the broad brush but mm-hmm. think of the number of kids that grow up resorts bait shops whatever where they're like in fishing they're around it and all they have to do is step in with a little bit of interest and they could rule the empire right and they grew up without a single desire to ever fish like they like they completely had enough you know and maybe as this they got burnt out when they were kids maybe they just had different interests you know uh but uh, it's amazing how many people, you know, the hardest thing in the world when you're in this industry is to raise kids that are also into it because it's so easy to burn them out. It's so many other things, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not as simple as uh, I thought it was before I had kids, I can tell you that. Do you, how do you balance the fishing and the television and even the hunting shows you do? How do you balance your passion for the outdoors as a business but also with your family? You know, it's tough. It's always a struggle. I feel like somebody's always pissed off at me or somebody, you know, there's something always short, right? Uh, either, you know, I'm failing my business or failing my employees or failing a sponsor or I'm failing my kids or my wife. It's like, you know, I just can't get through a day without something. But, um, you know, I try to, you know, I try to be the best dad I can. I try to be the best husband I can. Um, you know, trying to make time for everybody, uh, trying to be, I guess, patient and unselfish where, you know, like, for example, I'll get on the road somewhere and we're fishing and, you know, every night I'm staying in a hotel room or maybe a resort or something if I'm lucky and eating at a bar because we're on the water till dark and everything's closed in some small town and you're eating bar pizza and and uh, you're, you're eating at restaurants and finally I get home, I just want to sleep in my own bed and I just want to eat some hamburger hot dish or some <laughs> tuna casserole, you know, and, uh, you know, my wife like, let's go to Grand Forks and get a hotel room and go out for supper. I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't And my whole body starts shaking, you know, and I just suck it up. Okay, honey, let's go, you know, <laughs> let's do what you want to do, you know. But, uh, yeah, try to, try to, I guess all you can do is do the best you can, you know, and yeah. that's all you can do, you know. The new year is here, and for many of you, that means new personal goals and maybe just maybe even a few house projects. If your furnace is on that list of projects to tackle, let Aquarius Home Services help you. Right now, they're offering $98 off any furnace repair. That's $98 off of any furnace repair. Their heating and cooling technicians are experts at troubleshooting and repairing any and all types of furnace-related issues. Start the new year off right and stay warm and cozy this winter season. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended, and I recommend them. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. You know, Jason, something that we were actually talking with a previous guest about on this podcast just a couple weeks ago is that that balance of, um, you know, individuals who are in the outdoors, but also, you know, producing content, you know, whether it's TV, social media, you name it. Um, and I know something that, that people have experienced, myself included, the previous guest included, is having the act of, you know, gathering content when you're out doing what you love, actually taking away from the experience. Is that something that you've experienced? And if so, you know, I guess, how do you balance that? And how do you keep your love and enjoyment of the outdoors alive while you are creating content while you're out there? You know, I, I've never, so I, I've, I've seen that, you know, I've heard people talk about that very concept several times. I've never ever had an issue, or I've never had a any type of qualms, or, or like slowing down a film video. I mean, filming is definitely different than just straight up fishing. I mean, I catch a fish, I got to slow down. I see another mark down there, I want to unhook it and just get right back down there, but I can't. The cameraman needs a shot, so I've had to learn how to, you know, adjust to the camera versus just this 
fishing, you know, as far as getting all the shots that I need. But now I look at like filming and it's just like fishing where instead of trying to catch a fish, I'm trying to get the shots, you know, and I, I've never had any challenges as far as like the content creation, slowing down and doing that as far as interfering with my enjoyment of the outdoors. I feel like it has enabled me to do all this stuff outside, right? If I wasn't doing a TV show, if I wasn't doing all this stuff for a living, I wouldn't have been able to uh, fish enough. And I've often felt like I probably wouldn't have lasted any type of marriage or relationship because I was so nuts about fishing that I can at least say that I can work, you know, be, I mean, if you're self-employed and like for myself, you know, we single income, my wife stays at home with the kids, which is, you know, which is a nice thing that we use to justify my craziness. But, you know, say if I work 50 hours, 80 hours a week, 70 hours or whatever, and if I was doing that in any other job, I somehow I'd have to fish the other days that I was alive and awake, you know, and I would never have any time for anything, you know, whereas now I'm fishing all week. Well, I might take a Saturday and Sunday off and spend it with my family and not fish. Whereas if I would have been fishing for a living, there's no way that would have worked out. And so I feel like the content creation has enabled me to keep fishing at the craziness and the level that I've been able to do it all these years. And I don't know what I would have done without that, you know? And so I've always just kind of embraced just part of the deal, you know, like getting good pictures or whatever. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I'm crazy about fishing. I, I, I'm around it and I'm in it. I just, I'm happy. So. That's a great perspective. And, you know, you're certainly doing an elite job balancing, you know, all those different worlds. So we just have a, a couple minutes left here. And I want to ask, um, you know, as you look forward into the future, what's next for you? Either any other, you know, projects that you can talk about coming up or any, you know, trips or things that you're looking forward to this winter? Yeah, you know, we're going to be getting around here. I know we're going to go up to Canada. I'd like to go up to Canada and do kind of a drive to crazy walleye bite that isn't like Winnipeg. And so that's something that we're exploring. Um, I know we're going to be getting over to Minnesota a few times. We're going to get over to Wisconsin. We're going to be doing something on Green Bay. I love I love Green Bay. I mean, it's one of my favorite places. Um, it's a place that I've just stuck my nose into. I've, you know, we filmed a handful of shows on Green Bay over the years, but I just, it's, it's a place I want to spend a lot more time. I love doing exotic stuff that maybe is exotic for me. Like people come out to Devil's Lake to catch a 14-inch perch, which might be a really neat fish for people that have never seen a fish like that. For me to go to, say, Milwaukee Harbor and catch a brown trout or go up to Manitoba and catch a big lake trout, that's, like, really cool because we don't have that type of stuff where I live. You know, so i got to travel somewhere to, to do some of that stuff. Um, goodness, I wanna, I'd want to. love to go back to Alaska this summer. Uh, <coughs> we did a float plane experience a couple of years ago where we slept in wall tents and stream fished for salmon and we just had an incredible time, so I'd love to do that again. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I don't think too far ahead, though, either. That's probably my advice is that I kind of just roll with whatever's happening. So, Well, that's part of being a, a hunter and an angler is you – my wife always gives me a hard time. She's like, well, can't you just put it on the calendar and let's plan? I'm like, well, there's a lot of factors that are going to go into it. Like, is there a front coming in? Are there things – she's like, why yeah. can't you just go out during, you know – a certain time of the day, I'm like, that's the worst time of the day to fish, honey. That's <laughs> not when I want yeah. to be out there. You know, even I, you know, I've, I've struggled with that, with that, like with employees, right? Where, you know, I mean, everybody has a life. And I want to be respectful of everybody's life and their time away from work too. And they got, there has to be a balance there too. And, and, you know, we have two options. We either plan this out ahead, like, okay, January 5th through the 15th, we're going to be gone that week filming in this place. And it might take five days to do it, but if we can just sit back and be flexible, wait for the fishing reports to line up with good weather and a few other things to line up, we can be gone two days, short notice, spur of the moment, fly by the seat of your pants, or you can be gone a whole week planned ahead. Mm-hmm. And so as a team, we've kind of come together and said, you know what, let's fly by the seat of our pants and be home more. You know, every day that we fly by the seat of our pants and just react to something that's happening in the moment, uh, we're with our own kids and wives that many more days. So that's kind of how we roll or how we decide. So. Yeah. Well, there's, there's so much that I really want to unpack that we could dive into. We could do several more shows and I want to be um, respectful of your time, but I do have one last question for you before we wrap this up. If you're not going to film, if you weren't going filming somewhere to work and you were just going to go fish for the fun of it and you wanted to share this experience with other people, let's just say they only have one place to go fish this winter on their bucket list. Where would that be and why? What, what fishery right now would you send them to and why? Boy, 
And it's, you're talking ice fishing? Yeah, yep. Oh, I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, like if I think for like a lot of people, like bucket list would say they've ice fished their whole lives. And they've done a little bit of everything, and they've, you know, they've, you know, they've lived the grumpy old men life in Minnesota, where they've had the hard sided fish house on their favorite lake, and they've caught pails of crappies over the years, and a smattering of walleyes here and there. Um, I think to get out to a place like Fort Peck or Flaming Gorge or Northern Manitoba, say Wakesco or Athapap. And catch a big lake trout through the ice, I think, is a bucket list, exhilarating experience. Just where lake trout live and the process of catching them and everything about them, how they hit a lure, how hard they fight. I think if you've never done that or if you've just done, you know, if, you're, if you've been just sheltered in, say, Minnesota or the Dakotas and just done that type of fishing, I think uh, lake trout would be a pretty eye-opening experience that uh, I, w- I would wish for anybody. Um but, you know, uh, for other, for next person, the best thing in the world might be just a lake full of six-inch bluegills where you can't drill a hole without marking 10 feet of fish in the water column. <laughs> you know, and, and they're racing up as you're dropping down, you know. So I think it just kind of depends on the person. But uh, I don't know. I, there's so many things I love to do. I love big pike. I love the salmonoids, the trout. Um, I love big perch, walleyes. Um, I hope I never have to pick just one. <laughs> well said well said jason um when is your tv show airing on valley sports and then it's also on youtube as well where where do people watch all of your content yeah well more and more people are watching youtube all the time uh, we air on youtube you know we try to put stuff on youtube you know a week or so after we film it so it's pretty current content typically and so if you just search jason mitchell outdoors on youtube will pop up and then on Valley Sports North every Sunday mornings at nine o'clock, and so uh, yeah, we've been uh, we air either our fishing or ice fishing or our hunting programming year round on that station on that time, and so we've been on that spot for years, and so um, that's where you can find us. Well, appreciate you making some time for us today. We'll let you go with that. Best of luck to the rest of your ice fishing adventures this winter. We'll be watching with everybody else. All right, thank, thank you. you. We Jason. appreciate you guys. Thanks. Natalie, anything exciting coming up on your end besides jumping in frozen water again and jumping again? Jumping in again? a lot of frozen water. How I gotta off? start planning. I feel like I was a scheduled through the end of 2022, and now I, yeah. I gotta I gotta add some fun stuff into my calendar. Oh. So I will report back in two weeks with all the good adventures I have scheduled. Well, How's that sound? I'm excited for you. Then. <laughs> How about you? What's I'm next? heading to Kansas here. I'm gonna hunt for quail here in three days. I'm going to go down and uh, we're filming a TV show down there at a quail camp. Um, and it's with a very special friend of mine and four of his buddies. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be an emotional one, um, a heavy one because, uh, this will be the final hunt for one of his best friends. And so that's going to be, I've been there before in this, in that, uh, position, watching friends lose friends. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's hard to kind of capture that. I'm grateful that we'll be there with the camera to mm-hmm. document this um, for his family. But it's also tough, mm-hmm. you know. And so there's this this love of getting together every year that they've had. And so we're going to go there to be a part of it. Um, so I believe the hunting should be good, mm-hmm. fair to good or excellent, perhaps. Uh, a great group of great group of hunters and the dogs and so this will be my last hunt of the season so wrapping up the hunting season um and then get on the ice around here yeah i hope you guys have a great experience thank you appreciate that we'll share i'll do my best to keep sharing and then yeah yeah, i need to line up a few things too oh i you know what i should mention natalie and i if you're still listening thank you (laughs) Um, stay with us yeah so I don't think that the ice fishing trip to Ballard's is full yet. Oh, and great to share. So I'm hosting over President's Day weekend a trip up to Ballard's Resort on Lake of the Woods. There's a bus leaving the Twin Cities here, I believe. We've always met at Cabela's in Rogers, Minnesota, and then we drive up, coach bus, very nice TV screens. You might even see us on the screens. I don't know. They like to play that sometimes. But anyway, and then we, everything's taken care of up on Lake of the Woods. Meals, you go out in the bombardiers, out to the warm ice shacks, and you catch walleyes, and it's just a great trip. I host it thanks to um, Rapala. They got some – I just got off – 
not off the phone, just sharing emails before we started recording this about a few things I think we're going to give away. Coors Light has sponsored this in the past. If you like beer, you'll be happy. Be a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. The fishing is usually really good up on Lake of the Woods. It's one of those places that, uh, you, you know, I would have told Jason if we had to continue the conversation, like it's just one of those ice fishing experiences that to do it at least once to get in the bombers. Who knows how much longer those track systems mm -hmm. will be around. It's one of the only places in North America you can do it. And the fishing up there is awesome and we're going to host it. You know? right. So I think if you go to donorthoutdoors.tv, our website, or just search Do North Outdoors, you're going to find us. Um, and I think you'll see a landing page to that trip. And I think there's still a couple seats left. I don't, I haven't, I haven't been told that it's sold out yet. Usually once it sells out, mm -hmm. then I've, they're like, yep, it's full. Um, so if there's room, get in there. It'd yeah. be fun to go fish with you guys. Great. And um, yeah, so that's my last ditch. And lastly, I'll just add uh, for everyone still listening, if you do have ideas or guests that you would like to have us on uh, or have us have on for future episodes, um, feel free to, to reach out and give us those suggestions. You can contact us on the Do North Outdoors Instagram page. Wonderful. Send a DM. Well done today, Natalie. As always, what a professional. You too. It's a great start to, to the new year. Yes, great. One of our best. This is by far our best show of the new year. Best show of the year. We've For done. sure. Yes, 100%. Yes. We'll be back next week with another episode of Do North Outdoors. Yeah.